Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, if you have not been with us over the last few weeks, uh, to catch you up, we are in the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way through Easter, which is at the very end of April, uh, looking at what the church has historically referred to as the passion of Jesus, Jesus' journey to the cross, uh, which we celebrate on Good Friday and then his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so we are now coming, uh, we, are, we are coming into the very heart and lifeblood of what we claim to believe as followers of Jesus. Uh, and I, I am really just kind of humbled uh, beneath uh, the, the weight of the passage this morning that we're going to read together. And I really don't have any hopes that what I'm going to say is not going to be flat or not feel flat in light of how powerful, how stirring, how crucial uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is I had to stop a few times this week, three or four times this week, my office is back here, and just come and walk in this place just to kind of decompress uh, from just looking at these things. Uh, so let's read together uh, from Matthew's Gospel the passage about the Lord's Supper, uh, which is, in this sense, the last supper that Jesus celebrates with, with his disciples. We're changing things up this morning because we're going to be looking at this. We thought it might be good for us to celebrate communion this week, even though next week is our scheduled time. So for teachers who put aside their, their plans, thank you. Uh, fifth graders, fourth graders, third graders who are in the throes of great disappointment at the moment because they're in here. Rather than over there, and that came as a surprise to them, they didn't have ready to get ready to, they didn't have time to get gear up for that. Uh, thank you. I believe God wants you in here. I believe He's got stuff He wants to talk to you about this morning. So kids, pay attention, especially those of you who are getting ready to make professions of faith, so that you can come and be a part of this meal. Okay. Uh, so let's read together this very, very powerful passage in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 17, 17 through 29. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It's printed for you in your worship folder. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to do that as well. Let's read. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table. With the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, this is God's Word. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination this week, and I thought he made a really great observation. He was kind of meditating on, if you, if you look at all of the deaths of all of the founders of all of the major world religions, you see uh, some pretty interesting themes. For example, they're very similar. For example, Moses, who is in many respects the founder of Judaism, dies at 120 years of age. 
having lived a long life and seen God do miraculous things in his ministry, right? Um, Buddha dies, and this is just from taken from kind of the common writings of each of these religious you know, religious beliefs. Buddha dies at the age of 80, surrounded by his disciples. He died in complete serenity and was widely esteemed and thought well of. Confucius died in his hometown at the age of 72 in similar circumstances. Muhammad, founder of Islam, died in his 60s in the arms of his wife, having become the first political ruler of all of Arabia. Now contrast that with Jesus. And Christians claim to follow a man who died around the age of 33 after just three years of public ministry. And when he dies, he's alone, he's forsaken for the most part by his followers. He's executed by a colonial power, Rome, after being charged with treason. And so for all practical purposes, outwardly looking at his life, he dies a complete failure. Now, if you look at all the other founders of the world religions, each of them you know, claims some great truth about spirituality or how to live, and you can see how the system of doctrine or the teaching that they ascribed to or that they taught really worked. It worked. It brought peace. It brought harmony. It brought a sense of blessing into his life to a certain degree. So it makes sense. It makes sense to me that people in Hollywood would try out different religions as a form of self-expression, right? Julia Roberts would become a, a Hindu. To see if you can happen upon a certain religious system that works. Man, this really works for me. It, 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 I feel self-fulfillment. It's a, self, it's a form of self-expression. It's a label that I've put on myself. But the question is, why would anyone have ever looked at Jesus' life? See him die penniless and naked and ashamed and alone and say, yeah, I want that. I mean, yet the early Christians adopted the cross. The cross of Christ as their emblem to say this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is what we're after. And Cicero even said that crux, which is the Latin root of the word cross, is a swear word. So I'm hesitant to do this, but if I could, I mean, just follow me. If you think of a four-letter word, right, not for too long, because this is church and we want to keep it relatively. But if you think of a four-letter word, maybe even the nastiest four-letter word that you can think of in your brain, and imagine yourself starting a church... And then make the word that came to mind just a minute ago, the name of that church. So church of the. I mean, who would come to that church? I mean, who in their right mind would say, yeah, I'm going there. And yet that's exactly what happened. And Tim Keller goes on to say the cross. The cross was a swear word because it represented everything wrong. It represented shame. It represented hostility, it represented weakness, it represented defeat, it represented absolute, utter humiliation. Why then did the followers of Jesus say, this is what I want for my life, the cross? That's how I want to live. He says the only answer is that the fact of the crucifixion would only turn people away, but Jesus' explanation of the crucifixion is what won them to the idea. And that's what we have in these verses. Jesus is on his way to the cross. We're told here that his time has come. He says, tell this guy, my time is at hand. This is why he's coming to the world. This is what everything has been leading up to. This is is the point of all of it. He's going to the cross. It's Thursday evening. In a few short hours, he will be arrested, tried, sentenced, and flogged. And within 24 hours, he will be dead. But here... 
At this last meal he shares with his disciples, he explains as clearly as anywhere else why it's all going to happen. Now, of course, this meal is the basis for the meal that we celebrate together on a monthly basis, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or whatever name you might be used to calling it. But, but here, here in this passage, it's the Last Supper. It's the last time he has to kind of drill into the brain of his disciples what's going to happen and why it's going to happen that way. So understanding what Jesus was trying to teach them through this meal here in Matthew 26 will help us better understand what he's trying to teach us through this meal which is why we have the kids in here together with us this morning. And so we're going to celebrate this supper together after we walk through this passage this morning and then again next week. So two weeks in a row of the Lord's Supper, uh, which I'm very excited about. Uh, And we're going to see why that would be appropriate. Maybe that we not just do it two weeks in a row, but do it every time we get together. uh, Because it's so valuable and so important. So three things we're going to look at this morning, okay? Three things. And pray. Pray that somehow we get through this and it doesn't feel flat, because I don't know how in the world to get at it, but... These three things, the occasion of this meal we want to see. Secondly, not only the occasion, but the meaning of the meal. And then thirdly, and this is going to sound weird, but I'm going to explain it. I want us to see how we use the meal. So there's the occasion and then the meaning. And then thirdly, and this is really what Matthew's trying to get us to to do, is how do we use it? So those three things, okay? And let's walk through them beginning just with this, the occasion of the meal. And let's look here in verse 17. We're told by Matthew that this was the first day of the unleavened bread. And that was another name for the Feast of Passover, which if you look down in verses 17, 18, and 19, is mentioned three times, this idea of Passover. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because as part of the celebration of the Passover, the Israelites were forbidden to eat anything with yeast in it during the week-long celebration. The reason for that was is because they were commemorating their journey, their exodus out of Egypt. And if you remember the story from Exodus chapter 12, they were in such a hurry. God was working so powerfully and so quickly that they didn't have time to put the yeast in the dough and allow the dough to rise. They had to just kind of throw the bread in the oven and get it out as quickly as they possibly could to have provision for the journey that God was taking them on. And so there was no yeast in the bread. And this, this feast is an annual retelling of that story of God delivering them from Egypt. And so they were to reenact as it might be. They were to, they were to celebrate it in a way that they almost re-entered the story. And one of the ways of doing that was to eat nasty and unleavened bread, let's just admit, unleavened bread's not very good. And that's kind of the point, is to eat it for seven days. And that's why it's called the first day of the unleavened bread. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, I need to open this up for you just a little bit. The descendants of Abraham, which is one of the guys that appears very early in the, in the Bible, that God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your God, and your, your, your family is going to be my people, the people that I adopt to be my own. These descendants of Abraham, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, went down to Egypt in in Genesis in the very beginning of the Bible because there was a severe famine in the land, and they stayed there for many, many years. Joseph, who was his grandson, was second in command, and he brought them down, and the Pharaoh that was there, they lived there for many years, and the Pharaoh was excited about them being there and happy to have them come, but eventually they became so numerous that the governors and the pharaohs and the other leaders of Egypt who were once friendly to them for Joseph's sake began to fear their size and so made them slaves. And for 400 years, Israel was in Egypt as slaves. They cried out to God. He sent a man named Moses to rescue them. And the final straw in God working to bring his people out from under the cruel oppression of Pharaoh was an event called Passover. It was a a plague, a great plague 
the final display of God's power and wrath that God would send on Egypt. Because Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go, God said he was going to send the angel of death into Egypt and that the angel of death would kill every firstborn son in all of Egypt. I mean, this, just this final display of his power and wrath. But he gave the Israelites, his people, very specific instructions that on the night when the angel of death was to come into the land, they were to kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint the door frames of their house with the blood of the lamb so that when the angel of death came and saw the blood on the doorpost of the home, he would not enter the home. He would pass over that house and the firstborn son would be safe. He would be spared. And I just, I don't know if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, the Disney, which is funny, but the Disney animation of this event, it's just, it's just, it's powerful. And if you can imagine the terror, the horror, the screams throughout Egypt that night as parents woke to find their beloved children dead, struck down by God's wrath. And yet inside their houses are the Israelites huddled together, sharing a meal, eating, eating the lamb whose blood was spilt to save them. It was such a powerful deliverance that it became a defining reality in Israel's existence. So God commanded them in the law to reenact it every year throughout all the generations, year after year after year. And so to, to have an annual meal called the Passover to remind them of what he had done to rescue them and how his wrath had been averted through the death of a substitute. So they ate to remember his grace every year. Every year, Jewish families would come from all over Israel to Jerusalem, and they would bring with them lambs to the temple to be sacrificed uh, in their place as a sin offering. And then they would take the lamb, once it had been sacrificed, back into their homes, and they would gather together, usually with the extended families in some home or some banquet hall or whatever, and they would eat uh, this sacred meal together, which consisted usually of a lamb or, and bitter herbs and other vegetables and unleavened bread and wine. That's the meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. That's the occasion. Now, it also helps us understand the meaning of the meal. What would happen at this meal is there was a, a seder or an order of service that was followed during the meal. And so typically, uh, the head of the house or some leader would stand and would officiate this meal that the, that the family was celebrating together. And so there would be, uh, he would be telling a story, the story of the Passover, and every detail of the, you know, of the order of service, so to speak, was to tell a certain part of the story. So, for example, he would stand up when it was time to eat. He would explain every, you know, each of the symbolic elements of the meal. And so he would stand up and he would say, when it was time to take the bread, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And he would tell them the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And so this is how this went throughout this meal. Now, in this passage, you'll see Jesus is obviously the presider. He's the officiate. And he stands up at the meal, but notice he doesn't say the words that would have been typical of a Passover meal at this time. He doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate. Look at verse 26. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body broken for you. Now, what, what in the world is going on? What is that? What does he mean? And Jesus, through this meal with his disciples on the last night, which he will be able to be with them is trying to teach them something about what is really going on, that there's a greater slavery than the political slavery they were under in Egypt, and there's a greater salvation than being rescued and delivered from Egypt, that that, that event back in the Old Testament was just a, a what we call a type of what really needed to happen, that Jesus is claiming 
that the Passover, celebrated all throughout the centuries by the people of God, was meant to point to Him. It was about Him that He had come into the world finally to finish what God had begun in the Exodus. And that He was going to free them and us from an even greater evil than Pharaoh, from sin and death. And if you look at the Passover event, you see how non-discriminatory it really is that the angel of death didn't just enter into the houses of the bad people and the good people were spared. No, everybody was in danger. There was only one way of escape. It wasn't a matter of the good people, you know, God kind of, they're, they're okay, but the bad, no, there was one way of escape, and that was to take a lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost. See, the wrath of God against human rebellion and sin is coming, and no one is exempt, Jesus says, but there's a provision. And that's what this meal's about. So let's see it here. Let's walk through this language here very deliberately, uh, very slowly, because this is really important. Now, when Jesus takes the cup in verse 28 and gives it to his disciples, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Now, most scholars say that that statement there points to Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And in that passage, it's, it's a really strange and oh hard to read, because in Exodus 24, Moses is making the covenant, the bond the relationship, right, between Israel and the Lord uh, official. He's making it official. And in order to do that, what he does is he sacrifices an oxen, and he takes, he drains the oxen of its blood, and he takes the blood from that sacrifice, which you can imagine how much blood there was. And the people are standing there, you know, in the, the, the tabernacle thing and, and um, the, the little area of the tabernacle there. And Moses takes the blood of the oxen and half of the blood from the oxen he dumps upon the altar, which was kind of the representation of God's presence among his people. And then the other half of the blood he takes. And what the Bible says is it was, would be as if I would walk down the aisles and just begin to throw blood on all of you. He throws the blood on the people. And it's just really, oh, it's just a, I mean, why all the blood? I mean, what's that about? And the Bible very clearly says it's because of sin, that the fundamental problem is not that evil is out there. It's not that evil is a social or political entity. It's that evil is in here. The problem is me. It's my selfishness, my rebellion and arrogance. And there had to be blood because we're sinners. We're rebels. We've destroyed the creation, the Bible says. The very fabric of reality is unraveling because we demand to be the one in charge. And what the Bible talks about is that the justice of God demands satisfaction. I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis is working out in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? The white witch knows, if you know the story, that Edmund must be punished for his rebellion and sin. If he's not, she says, Narnia will unravel and perish. That sin demands satisfaction. There has to be justice. There has to be a punishment that is enacted. That's what Lewis called the deep magic. And yet, here we see there has to be blood. Sin demands that blood be shed. And yet God is determined to have a relationship with us. And that's what that word covenant means. He's bound himself to us. He longs to live with us and love us. And for that reason, there would have to be blood. And so the blood of Passover lambs, the blood of bulls and goats offered in the temple... The Old Testament's really bloody. But if you look carefully, if you look carefully, the tension that's being worked out in the story of redemption as it unfolds in the Old and New Testament is just this, that it really the blood and bulls of bulls and goats doesn't work 
they have to keep going back over and over again, don't they? This blood that's being, all this blood that's being shed really doesn't work because they have to keep doing it time after time after time after time. And so really what's being worked out is that at the end of the day, there really is only two options. If God is going to be in relationship with us because of our sin, there must be blood and it must either be his blood or our blood. If you go back even further into Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham and he enters into relationship with him. And if you remember the story, the way you would cut a covenant in that day is you would take an animal and you would cut it in two and you would lay the pieces of the animal with a little pathway in between. And so each of the parties making it, can you, can you imagine a marriage service like this, right? Bloody animals down the altar. And you walk through them, and in walking through them, you're saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be cut in two the way that these animals have been cut in two. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he takes Abraham out there, and they lay the pieces out. But an amazing thing happens. God walks through the pieces, but Abraham doesn't. Only, only the flaming pot, the, the theophany of the Lord in that moment, only God walks through the pieces. He's the only one. Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces, and the point is just this, that God is saying, Abraham, if I don't keep covenant with you, may I be cut in two. But Abraham, if you don't keep covenant with me, may I be cut in two. Either way, God's saying, loving you is going to require my blood. You see, that's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is gearing up for here, that we have not kept covenant. We've been rebellious and stubborn. Look at the context even in this passage. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. At the table with him, sitting right next to him is his betrayer. And immediately after this scene, if you were to read forward in Matthew's gospel, is a story about how Peter, uh, Peter is sure of his devotion to Jesus. And Jesus has to tell him, look, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. These men sharing this meal with him will shortly abandon him and deny him and forsake him. And one of them, Judas, is even going to actively orchestrate his capture. And yet he gives them his body and his blood. He washes their feet. It's a picture of God's faithful love given to the faithless. To remind us that our salvation does not depend upon the depth of our commitment to him, but upon the depth of his commitment to us. Now catch Jesus' words here. Let's get a little further into the language. Verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do you see English teachers? Do you see the English preposition for there? It's twice in that verse, but what's fascinating is, is that it's a different preposition in the Greek. It's translated for both times, but it's a completely different Greek preposition. A better translation would be this. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out on account of, or because of, or in the place of many, toward the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's take this slowly, okay, because we're really getting at the heart of what we believe Christianity to be. Because in those two little prepositions, Jesus gives us the why and the what of the cross. He tells us the reason he has to die and then what his death accomplishes. So the first four there. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That's a preposition there of association. It's a marker of being related to. So Jesus is saying that his blood is poured out for us. In other words, on account of us, because of us. It is our rebellion and sin that are the cause for his blood to be shed. Why? Because that's what the justice of God Requires, But that little preposition there, it also means on behalf of or in the place of. And this is where the absolute wonder of the meaning of the meal comes out. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is that 
He is offering his blood in the place of our blood. It should be our blood that was spilled. We are the one that broke covenant. We should be cut in two. Our blood should be poured out, but instead Jesus steps in front of us and it is his blood that is poured out in the place of ours. Right? The dagger of God's wrath is being hurled. It's hurling towards us. And just like in all the great movies, what does the hero do? The hero steps in front of the one he loves and takes the dagger. And that's what Jesus has done. I mean, you see this. You see this idea over and over again. In all the great stories we tell, I was thinking of the movie The Iron Giant. And I don't know if you're familiar. Kids, if you're familiar with the movie The Iron Giant, uh, we need to watch it at my house. Because I don't know if we've done that in a while. But if you know the story of The Iron Giant, there's this... This 50-foot iron man that's fallen from the sky, and he's seen as a threat, and so the government decides they're going to destroy him, but he's made friends with a little boy and has come to live in this town with these people. And what happens is, is that eventually the government, it's set in the 50s, so you can imagine the government decides they're going to drop an atomic bomb on the town and destroy everybody in the town, obviously, and the giant along with him. And when the giant finds out this is going to happen because of the love that he has for this little boy, and the love for the people of the town, the giant doesn't wait for the bomb to come and destroy them all. He jets and takes off and goes into the atmosphere and meets the bomb, and there's a big, gigantic explosion. He sacrifices himself. He gives himself up. He destroys himself for the sake of sparing the townspeople and the little boy that he loves. It's, it's everywhere, this idea. This idea of Jesus being broken in our place. Jesus' blood being spilt in our place. And if you look carefully at Matthew's account here, there's bread and there's wine on the table. Do you see that? But there's something missing, isn't there? What's missing? There's no lamb. And why is there... Where's the main... I mean, really, how satisfying is that little piece of bread and that little cup you get when we do this? Right? Not exactly, you know, lunch. And the main course was the lamb. Well, where's the lamb? I mean, there's no mention of the lamb. And there's no lamb on the table in this story because the lamb of God is at the table. Jesus is the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world as a sacrifice for our sins. He is our Passover lamb. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. And so we're told that his blood of the covenant is being shed or poured out for many. But then he goes on for the forgiveness of sins. And that little preposition there means toward, or in other words, this is the goal. This is why. This is what his death accomplishes. Jesus says that the, 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 the means by which uh, he brings forgiveness is through his shed blood, that his being poured out leads to our sins being forgiven, that he's offered his blood in the place of ours as a payment for sin. The result is that if we come to him, we can have our sins forgiven. And now God looks down upon us and smiles. There's no more wrath. There's no more condemnation. Now, we need to come to a a close here. And I want to do that by saying, under this third point that I have here for you, that Matthew's account of the Last Supper is unique in one more respect. And that is that he is the only one of the gospel writers who records Jesus saying, look at these words, take, eat, drink. In other words, Jesus' instructions in this meal are full of imperative verbs. They call us to action. And what I think Matthew's getting at is that he's saying it's not enough just to have a right understanding of this meal. You have to participate in it. You have to enter into it. You have to make it yours. There's a parallel passage in John's Gospel. Uh, And in John's Gospel, uh, though it's not at the Last Supper, Jesus turns to the people following him. Susan, do we have it? Look at this. 
Look at these words. I mean, I just marvel at this. Here's what Jesus says in these verses. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, I had her put those up there, I said, to verify that that is actually in the Bible. Does that creep anybody out? We're told, we're told in this passage that, that as soon as Jesus said this, most of the people that were following him decided, you know what, nah, I'm not, no, no thank you. And they leave. I mean, what could that possibly mean? It's very strange language. I mean, what does Jesus mean when he says, take, eat, take, drink, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, on one hand, you have the very high church view. Just leave that up there, Susan, if you would. On the one hand, you have a very high church view that believes that the bread and the cup in the supper are or become the actual body and blood of Christ. So if you want to get Jesus, all you have to do is have the bread and the wine. It's there. And it becomes his body, literally. On the other hand, is the typical evangelical Protestant view that says that this meal is just a memorial. It's just a remembrance, but it doesn't really do anything special for you. And most of us in this room grew up in one of those two camps. Uh, but I want to say I really think there's a compromise, there's a third way, in the sense that it had to be representational. It can't be that Jesus meant that the, the, the bread literally becomes his body because he had not died yet on this night. So on this night, at least, it had to be representational. But it also has to go way beyond a memorial. I mean, look at what Jesus says, my flesh, right there, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. In other words, when I understand Jesus' death, when I understand what he's saying about his death, when I eat and I drink, remembering what his death means, the Spirit of God works powerfully in me. More powerfully than anywhere else, really. More powerfully than in a quiet time. More powerfully in private devotions. Right here at this table, the Spirit of God works powerfully to make the gospel real. That the Spirit takes the cross and begins to shape my heart with it. That the bread nourishes me, not physically but spiritually. That the cup satisfies me. That my spiritual thirst is satisfied. I mean, this is the language of faith. Jesus is saying, here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you, but you have to take hold of it by faith. I mean, the reality of my sacrifice has to become like food that nourishes you and like drink that satisfies your thirst. You have to eat it. You have to drink it. It's not enough just to say you believe in Jesus. You have to taste his goodness. It has to become real. There's to be spiritual reality in the heart. You have to have a sense, what the Puritans would say, a sense on the heart of God's Goodness, that he is sweeter than anything else in all the world. He has to be food and drink to you. And that means that genuine believing in Jesus. In other words, if you're not a Christian, what we mean by becoming a Christian, we mean much more than you walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, you go through some ritual. We mean that becoming a Christian means you actively seek to satisfy the desires of your heart with him and not with worldly things. That you're hungry. And he's your food. That you're thirsty. And he's your drink. We call this a, a means of grace. And here's where we really see how Matthew's trying to help us to use this meal. What the Bible would teach us is a sacrament. It's something very sacred. It's a means of God's grace in our lives that functionally, the Bible says, we're feasting on other things. And we call those things idols. 
that we're feasting on the praise and the approval of others or on material possessions or our moral record, that we're constantly looking for food and drink elsewhere, trying to find life and significance in a relationship or a personal achievement or some kind of goal, and that that's where this supper begins to go to work. This supper is meant to go to work in those places in our lives where there still is unbelief, where fear and pride are still deep, deeply rooted in us, right? Where, where we're practically forgetting the gospel. And that's why we call it a means of grace, that God has chosen this meal to be the way, one of the most important, most effective, most powerful ways of driving the truth of the gospel home to our hearts. And so where you've lost sight of the gospel, where you're not remembering that Jesus died for you and you've moved back maybe into works righteousness, so you're beating yourself up or you're arrogant and you're proud, this meal is, stands right in the middle of our life together as a correction to say, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. How dare you be proud? How dare you be proud? How can you ever be proud? Here's my body. I was ripped in two because of your sin. Look at what it cost him to love you. But how dare you despair over your sin? He died. It's been dealt with. His blood was shed. You see that? Wherever you need a greater faith in the gospel, whether it's you're having trouble forgiving somebody or you're going through suffering and you're doubting God's goodness, whatever it might be, wherever you need a greater faith in the gospel, this table, this meal, is the place where God promises to work in you. That through this meal, his flesh becomes true food and his blood becomes true drink. And whoever feeds on him abides in him and he in us. I mean, this, I want to say it this way, this is the gospel in high definition. Right? Right here. Take. Matthew says, take. That means grab hold of. Seize. Forcefully take hold of it. Eat it, Jesus says. It's not some dainty dinner party. He's saying, come like someone who's absolutely famished, and the way we say it in our family is crush it. Right? Destroy it. Like a hungry man who's not eaten for four days. Eat it like a starving man would. Consume it and let it nourish you. Matthew says, drink. That word means absorb it. Soak it in like a sponge. I mean, this is the way we're to approach this meal together. We're to seize the truth it reveals. We're to forcefully grab hold of them by faith. We're to consume them and soak in them until all of our doubts about God's love for us are answered. All of our fears and worries are put to rest. That's what this is about. So how in the world do we do that? What do we need to do to make sure we're using the supper as God intends us to? And I want to offer four practical steps, and I'm just going to say five, actually. I'm sorry, five practical steps. I'm just going to say them to you. Write them down if you want to. They're five Ps. They should be easy for you to remember. And then um, we're going to come to the table. But if we really are going to use the supper the way we need to, here are five things we need to do. First, prepare. P, prepare. There's a reason why we give you a week's notice before we do this because there's heart preparation that must take place before we come to this meal. Wake up earlier. Talk about it around the dinner table. Prepare. Get yourself ready. Number two, participate. Be here. If, if, if the word, there's a point, there's a place in the scripture where Jesus says, uh, my food is to do the will of my Father. If, if what your soul, if the nourishment your soul really needs are the words of Christ, the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ. Then to not make a point of being here is foolishness. You'll go through your life starving and without sustenance and, with, and lacking the nourishment you need to be faithful and to be effective. B, 
be here. And when you're here, be here. Be here in this moment. Step three, ponder. Ponder. In other words, on these Sundays where we celebrate this meal together, can I encourage you to take some time on those Sundays after Sunday afternoons once a month, may the, may the, make the rhythm of your life that you stop at some point and you just think. And you work out the implications. Ponder. Don't rush past it. Don't get out to dinner and go home and rush into the rest of the week. Stop and ponder. Four, step four, proclaim through word and deed as we, as we celebrate this together, especially to your children, proclaim. We're told in the Passover uh, meal section that, that at the dinner table, the children are going to say, what is this we're doing? And then, and then it's an opportunity for the parents to explain. We had a moment like this. Last month we were celebrating communion in Abby. My six-year-old has never been in because she's always in class. She's never been in here. And so Jonathan's up there and he's explaining this. And she turns to me, Daddy, what is that? I thought, holy smokes, God's moving. I mean, that's a miracle. What an amazing thing. And when your kids ask, tell them. Tell them. Talk to them. Proclaim it. Let them know what it is. And then five, step five, participate. Jesus said, do this, do do this, do this in remembrance of me. He's broken his body and shed his blood. If you want to really get into the reality of what this thing is, then you've got to go and have your body broken and your blood shed. Live your life with your kids, with your wife, with your neighbors, with the city we live in. Live your life mimicking the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. Now, let me close with just this story to conclude. Uh, And I think this will be helpful. In the Lord of the Rings... Uh, the movie, but really this is in the book. It comes out in the book. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a place where Pippin, who is one of the hobbits, is standing at the gates of Minas Tirith, which is the big battle scene at the end of the third movie, if you need to kind of figure out where you are in that. And the enemy has broken through uh, the gates, and so all hope seems lost. And just when it, it feels like he feels like giving up, something amazing happens. Pippin hears the sound of horns in the distance. Now, if you know the, the story, the horns, of course, are the king of Rohan, who has come to fight. And this king rides forth to his death, but in his dying, the city is saved. Now, Tolkien says in the novel that when Pippin heard the horns, it seemed that they would break his heart for joy. And then an amazing thing, he says. He says, from that day on, every time he heard a horn, he would burst into tears. Why? Because every horn reminded him of the horns he heard on that day. Every time he heard a horn, he got a living memory, so to speak, of his salvation. He, every time a horn sounded, he would burst into tears because the memories came back of the king who rode to his death for his sake. And he knew that he would never not be alive apart from his sacrifice. Of course, he walked around knowing that. But when he heard a horn, it broke in on him. And he knew it in a deeper way. So as we come to this table this morning, we are, what are the bread and the cup? They're a horn blowing in the distance. They remind you not only that Jesus has ridden out on a donkey to his own death to save you, but if you look in verse 29, they also remind you that he's coming again. Do you see that? And when he comes again, he will come riding on a cloud in absolute triumph to put everything to right. So when we eat this meal, we're not only remembering that sad day of his death, we're also remembering and looking forward to the day of his return. But we live in between those times. We live in the wilderness, so to speak. And what you need most in the wilderness is you need food and you, and you need drink. And so as we wander in the wilderness, as his people waiting for him to return, he says, here's my body, it's real food. Here's my blood, it's real drink. Take it, eat it, drink it, and you'll have life. So let's pray and get ready to come. Lord Jesus.
we ask that as we prepare to eat this meal together now, that you would, uh, that you would do what you promised to do, that you would abide in us and we would abide in you as we come now to this table. Would you make known to us your real living presence in this meal that we celebrate now? And would this bread, as meager as it is, become real food to us? And would this cup, as small as it might be, be real drink that we might be satisfied in you? And turn away from all of the broken cisterns Jonathan mentioned that we're trying to find life in. Come now and be with us as we sup together and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue to prepare our hearts to come to this table this morning, I'm going to ask that you stand. And as a way of expressing your faith in Christ in response to what you've heard this morning. So please stand. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And so I ask you, Christian, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you remember the five Ps I gave you, the first one was prepare. And so we take time before we come to this table to ask you to think through a couple of areas of self-reflection and self-examination as a way of preparing yourself to come. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is offering his body broken and his blood shed to those who have put their faith in him. And so if you're not a Christian, uh, then what you need is not this bread and this cup. You need Jesus. And so come to him. But we ask that you refrain from coming to this table until you've come to talk to one of us so we can so we can make sure of those things. And then next month we'll celebrate this. Actually, next week we'll celebrate this, and you're welcome to come then. But this is a table that is, that is reserved for those who put their faith in Christ. But then the second point of self-examination we ask, this is a table where we celebrate what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, which we read just a bit earlier, that we have, through his death, been reconciled to God. And if we indeed have been reconciled to God, if that is the truth of the gospel, then for us to come to this table uh, and not and not have worked to be reconciled to one another. Uh, Paul says, be very, very careful that you not eat in an unworthy manner, that the judgment of God rests upon those who do. And so we ask, we ask that you search your heart, are you at peace? Or is there a need for you to do work in being reconciled and in figuring out, you know, how to be relationally whole before you come to this table to celebrate that Jesus died to reconcile you to the Father? If not, The Bible is very clear. Go and do that work and then come back after it's done and celebrate this meal. So think through those things, okay? The way we celebrate and do this together is we ask that you come down the center aisle. There will be four stations of servers here up front. Take bread, take a cup, return to your seats on the outside. Once everyone has been served, uh, then we will all partake of the meal together. I would note uh, the men who are going to be, we're going to have all men serving this morning. Um, That's not a chauvinistic ploy on our part. Uh, these are the men who are in training to be officers in our church, deacon and elders, and I think it's just a great opportunity for them to serve you. 
So come and take this bread and, and this cup from them. Return to your seat once everyone's served. Uh, then we will partake of it together, okay? This is uh, the table of the Lord. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. My flesh is real food. After supper, he took the cup. Having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Take, drink, for my blood is real drink. Let's pray together. And men, if you would come while I pray. Lord Jesus, you know how I've longed for you to use this meal to break through all of our unbelief and our hard-heartedness and our sin. Uh, You know, Lord Jesus, how I have longed for you to come and show up uh, in a powerful way through this meal we celebrate together this morning. So I pray that you do just that. Lord Lord Jesus, we look to the promises of Scripture that say uh, that you abide at this table with us and that you promise to work through this meal. And so I pray that you do just that. That where there's unbelief and doubting and fear and pride, uh, that, you would, that you would offer a correction and that you would grant us repentance. And so as we come now, I pray we come with uh, great reverence. But also that we would come with great joy as starving people who've been waiting for a meal for days. And have finally found one. That we would come and we would devour. That we would come and we would soak. That we would see that this bread and this cup is the food and the drink that our souls so desperately need. Come, Lord Jesus, and be with us now as we eat together, we pray. In your name and for your sake, amen. As you feel that, you come.
Amen. And having taken the bread, this is the body of Christ for you. Taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the provision uh, that you have given to us even as we wander as your people, waiting for your return, uh, that we would be nourished by your body, broken for us and your blood shed for us. It is uh, too great. Uh, thank you for the promise that our salvation does not depend upon our level of commitment to you, but upon the level of your commitment to us. And that you were willing to enter into covenant with us, though we are covenant breakers, and to say, If I fail to keep covenant with you, may I be ripped in two. But if you fail to keep covenant with me, may I be ripped in two. And indeed, it was your blood and not ours that was shed. And that God's blood was shed in the place of ours. That is is too wonderful to even really comprehend. But would you begin to drive it home to our hearts? That we might see you, that we might become more like you, that we might bear fruit that is to your glory, that we might live as your people in the city you've called us to, and in the world you are continuing to redeem. We pray all these things that you might gain much glory. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. It is our custom to typically take...
a, uh, a offering uh, that goes to the needs of the poor and the needy in our city. We're not going to do that today. I would remind you next week at our regularly scheduled and appointed time of celebrating this meal together, we will take a mercy offering. And all of the proceeds from that offering will go specifically to a project that some members of our church are doing with the Boys and Girls Club here in Winter Haven. The Matt and Leslie Dyes Family Foundation is going to do a new playground facility for the kids, 450 kids that are there. So be ready for that. Uh, please bring your checkbooks and be generous to that work. Next week, we're going to take an offering for that. But this morning, we're going to do what we're told in the Scripture the disciples did, that once they had celebrated this meal together, they sang a hymn, and then once they sang a hymn, they departed. So that's what we're going to do. So Terry, please lead us. Stand with us, if you will.
please come tonight and join us to pray. We have a great time downtown, uh, and uh, we would love to have you. And also, just to, just to clarify, if you're new to our church, and by that I mean if this is your first Sunday, or if you've been here for six months, we realize how hard it is to break into a church. We hear this consistently, and we want to be a church that welcomes people well. And so why not have a lunch where we welcome people? And we're not very crafty about names around here, so we call it the welcome lunch. Uh, and that, that's, you know, because it's a lunch and it's there so we can welcome people. So that's it. Uh, we're going to be doing that over in Covenant Hall as soon as the service is over. So please stay. We have plenty of food. Uh, the purpose of that is that we really, are, we really, the structure of care and of relationships around here is community groups. And we need to explain that to you. If you're not in a community group and you've been around for a while, you probably don't feel very connected. And so we're trying to, that lunch is there for you. So please come and, uh, and eat with us and, and get to know a wider group of people because we'd love to put our arms around you and, and receive you. Now, what king, what king has ever died for his disloyal subjects? And yet that is what we claim to be true in the gospel. And because he died, then now I can raise my hand over you and, and with the promise that if your faith is in Jesus Christ then the blessing and the love and the smile of God rest upon you, no matter what your record is. And so receive, then, this affirmation, this word of affirmation, this good word the Father pronounces over all of you who have faith in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.